Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Today, we begin a series on uh, Jonah. And this series is going to take us all the way to Palm Sunday. So it's uh, over the next four or five weeks. And the story of Jonah is a really famous story, right? Uh, if you grew up in the church, and maybe if you even didn't grow up in the church, you probably know about the story of Jonah, because Jonah is one of the most famous of all the Bible stories. And so you know the story. Jonah is called to preach in a city called Nineveh. He disobeys God, and he heads to Tarshish by boat. He's then thrown overboard, swallowed by a whale, and survives, uh, he repents while he's inside the whale, and so he's then spit out. He goes to Nineveh, he preaches, people repent, Jonah is the hero. The moral of the story is obey God the first time to avoid all the bother about living in whale guts, right? Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the point of the story. Uh, or maybe it isn't, right? Do you really know this story? So during the next four weeks, we'll discover that this story actually has a lot more to offer us uh, than a simple moralistic lesson about obeying God. And in fact, what we'll learn is that this story asks some really provocative questions about our lives here and now. But the truth is we're fighting an uphill battle. Uh, this story is so well known that we have to unlearn a lot in order to hear it with new perspective. So uh, each week of the series, we're gonna try to just kind of unpack a little bit of an unlearning, uh, and then we'll kind of get to the point of what we wanna do. And so the first question that really comes up uh, a lot about this story is, is this story true? Is this story true? Now, when folks ask this question, what they often mean is, is this story historical narrative, or did this really happen? Uh, and for many people, how you answer that question is actually a litmus test for whether or not you believe in miracles and the truthfulness of Scripture. <laughs> uh, for, but for a lot of people, it becomes like, like a real stumbling thing. It becomes a real struggle uh, because of, you know, it becomes a struggle because of things like science, <laughs> Like, how can a person live inside of a whale? Is this, is this possible? Is this a miraculous historical narrative? What's going on? Uh, and so for a lot of people, it becomes this litmus test on is scripture reliable? Is it truthful? Do you believe in miracles? And then and kind of the immediate question is, then what do you say about Jonah? Um, and the, for, the answer is, if you answer yes, then your faith is on solid ground. The Bible can be trusted. But if you answer no, then your faith is dead and you don't believe in miracles or the trustworthiness of the whole Bible must be called into question. And so somehow the validity you accept that a man was swallowed by a giant fish and survived. And I, my encouragement to all of us this morning is let's just stop. <laughs> <laughs> like if this, is, if this is kind of the level that we're thinking and kind of trying to process Jonah, uh, this is ridiculous and let's just, let's just stop. Uh, because asking, this, is, asking the question, is this story true, is a much bigger question than, is this story historically accurate? Uh, because truth transcends historical accuracy. Are you with me? 
Truth transcends historical accuracy in the sense that it can point us to greater understanding of ourselves, greater understanding of our world, of of God. And any story can be true in the sense that it challenges us, moves us, motivates us, inspires us, but not be historically accurate. Okay? Let me give you an example, because many of you are already composing an email to me, right? (laughs) To say, like you're already turning me into the district of the Church of the Nazarene. So uh, before you hit send on that email, let me give you an example. Uh, How many of you have seen the movie Wonder? Oh, come on, help me out. No, whoa, okay, so like not very many of you. So Wonder is like this brilliant film uh, that tells the story of, like, I, I gotta be honest with you, I expected a lot more hands right there. So I'm gonna have to backpedal and, and try to do this. So, um, so, if, so Wonder tells the story of Augie, Augie Pullman, uh, who has facial deformities and uh, doesn't know how to face a world that isn't willing to face him because of his facial deformities. It's this brilliantly scripted film that reveals all kinds of truths about the human condition, about how we so often make snap judgments about the intelligence of people based on how they look, Uh, the human condition about how so easy we are to isolate and make fun of people who are different than us, and a beautiful story about the human condition that who we are as people has nothing to do with how we look on the outside. If you've seen Wonder, your house is probably out of Kleenexes. It is an absolute tearjerker and a brilliant film. Now, if someone were to ask the question, is the story Wonder true? Uh, On one hand, the answer is no. Augie Pullman is not a real person. But if you're asking in the deeper sense, is this story true? The answer is absolutely yes, because it reveals all sorts of things about who we are. And so my encouragement to us as we approach Jonah is not to strip our definition of truth down to, are the facts accurate? You with me? Now this, for some, may be a leap. Uh, But I want to approach Jonah from the, story, from the perspective of this story is true in what it is showing us about who we are and about who God is, okay? So historically, uh, so, so when we come to Jonah, we need to know like what, what are we reading? What are we reading? And Jonah, and we're gonna read the whole first chapter today, but Jonah, Jonah 1.1 uh, begins with, the word of the Lord uh, came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now, this is a classic beginning of a book for what kind of book? Actually, if you have your Bible open to Jonah already and you turn one page over to Micah, it says the word of the Lord came to Micah, okay? So it's a classic beginning for what kind of book? It's a prophetic book. Jonah is a prophet. So what what we're reading already is the story of a prophet, but Jonah is unique among all of the prophets because all the other books of the prophets are records of the prophet's words, of the prophet's poems, of the prophet's proclamations. But here in Jonah, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, and it doesn't go on to say what Jonah said, but rather it goes on to tell a story of Jonah's life. And so it's actually 
narrative, a narrative prophetic word, and it is unique among all the prophets. And of course, with, among theologians, good, God-loving, Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming theologians, there have classically been two approaches to this story. Number one is, this story is historical narrative. The story actually happened in history. The details we're given uh, about the story are historically accurate. And, and there are many Christians who love God, who follow Jesus, and hold this view. And then there is a second view that is held by many Christians who love God, who believe the Bible, and that is that this story is parabolic, which means uh, that doesn't, that's not like diabolic, right? It's different. Uh, but parabolic, which means it's parable. And a parable is a story meant to teach us something. Now, immediately, those of you who are sharp are like, uh, 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 careful, Pastor Andy, you're walking on dangerous ground here because uh, it can't be a parable because Jonah was a real person. So it has to be historical narrative. And you would be right when you say that Jonah was a real person, but you would be wrong in your assumption that a real person can't appear in a parable. Huh? Because in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable and names a real person in history. But, the, but he's obviously placing a real person in history inside of a parable story. Here's the point. I'm not gonna try to convince you either way. But I, I want us to realize as a faith community who loves God and believes the Bible is authoritative in our lives that you can hold either view. You with me? Yeah, so, yeah some of you are like, uh, no, <laughs> not with you. Uh, but that's okay, that's okay. You can hold either view, that's the point. You decide what, what you think about this story. So with that in mind, let's approach with humility Jonah chapter one. Jonah chapter one says this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. Now he went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for the port and after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish in order to flee from the Lord. And then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up and all of the sailors were afraid and they cried out to their own gods. And then they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below the deck and where he lay down and then he fell into a deep sleep. And the captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice on us so that we will not perish well, then the sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all of this trouble for us and what kind of work do you do and where are you from and what is your country and, and from what people are you, right? <laughs> and then Jonah answered, answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Interesting, isn't it? that Jonah, trying to run away from God, would then admit that God is the God of the sea. <laughs> oh, Jonah. Now this terrified them, and they asked, what have we done, or what have you done? Because he was running away from the, they knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had already told him so. Well, the sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to make the sea, sea calm down for us? Jonah answered, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and it will become calm for I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. 
But instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. So then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you have pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows to him. Verse 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's look and explore this story, shall we? Jonah is called to preach in Nineveh. Jonah is a prophet. Uh, He's a prophet from Israel, so he's an Israelite. And he is called to preach in Nineveh. Nineveh is a city outside of Israel, so he is called to preach in a foreign land. Now, when I was a kid, we used to sing this song at almost every missionary service. Well, when I was a kid, we went to church three times a week. You went to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. There was nothing to to negotiate about. That's just how and when you went to church. And so on the second time that we went to church on Sunday, uh, in the evening, we often had what was called missionary services. And almost every missionary service, we would sing a song. And I don't know why we sang this song on missionary night, because it doesn't seem to make any sense, but the lyrics went like this. I thought missionary night was when you were trying to get people to go and be missionaries, but instead we sang this song. And the song is, the lyrics of the song are this. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think I've got what it takes. I'm just a man. I'm not a Tarzan. I don't like lions, gorillas, or snakes. And we would sing that with all of the passion of our heart on missionary night. And so here's Jonah, and I'll bet that's a lot how Jonah felt when the Lord told him to go preach in Nineveh. It's a foreign land. Lord, please don't send me to Nineveh. I don't think I've got what it takes, you know? It's just like you can, you can place yourself in, in, in Jonah's shoes here. Maybe that's how he felt, and so he ran. Nineveh was the same as sending him to Africa, so he ran. Now what's interesting about this is that he doesn't just run. But he goes as far away as possible. Uh, Let's let's do some geography and realize what is going on here. He lives in Joppa, which is a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. He is called to Nineveh, but he heads to Tarshish. Brenna, do we have the map that that I want to show? All right, so on the right-hand side uh, is Nineveh, that little pin drop. Just to the left of that pin drop is Joppa. That's where Jonah lives. And then he flees to Tarshish, which is all the way on the left-hand side. I want you to see this. Jonah literally gets on a boat to sail the entire length of the Mediterranean Sea. That's how far he runs. This is an estimated 2,500 miles away. This is not like, Lord, you called me to Greeley. I'm going to go to Fort Collins instead. It's not like that, right? It is like you have called me here and I'm going as far away in the opposite direction as possible. I am literally going to what I consider the end of the world. I would rather do that than go to Nineveh. This is pretty radical. I mean, this is radical disobedience. And so the question immediately comes up, like if, you know, 
the original audience would have immediately had this geography in their head, and they would, have, they would have asked the question, like, why in the world is Jonah running from God's call with such passion? Well, if you read the story, you're actually left hanging with that question. This question of why does Jonah run all the way across the Mediterranean Sea? Like, what is going on? And you just let that question hang for the entire story until you get to chapter 4. Now, I like all of you, I love all of you, and I want to let you in on the secret. I'm not going to make you wait till the end of the series to answer that question. We get the, we get the, we get the answer to the question, why did Jonah run so far away? And it's found in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, where Jonah admits to running because of God's compassion and kindness. It says this, he prayed to the Lord. This is what Jonah says to God. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? And this is what I tried to forestall. You know what forestall means? It means taking action to prevent something. This is what I tried to forestall uh, by fleeing to Tarshish because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God who is slow to anger and abounding in love and a God who relents from sending calamity. And so Jonah, at this point in the story, Jonah has gone to, to, uh, to Tarshish, and he has, or to Nineveh. He's gone to Nineveh, and he's preached the word, and all of Nineveh has repented, even the cows. Even the animals are in repentance. That's true. Read the story. All the animals repent. And you're like, whoa, we've I mean, we got some like, kitties saved. I always knew they'd be in heaven, you know? So it's like pretty powerful stuff, right? And then, but Jonah is still angry. And so in the chapter four, after Nineveh has repented before the Lord, he goes and he says, this is the whole thing that I was trying to avoid in the first place because I know that you are a gracious and compassionate God who's slow to anger and is always relenting from sending calamity. Right? I mean, read the story for what it is. I mean, this is like almost comic book style like stuff going on. And what Jonah is actually doing here is he's actually quoting back God's own description of himself from Exodus. And then he's using it as an insult against God. So like here's what God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34. Jonah knows that because he's a prophet of God and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. Here's Exodus 34 verses five through seven. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there uh, with him and he proclaimed his name, the Lord, and he passed in front of Moses. This is a story happening with, with Moses uh, proclaiming and he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, gracious God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands for forgiving wickedness, forgiving rebellion, and forgiving sin. That's how God describes himself. And then Jonah takes that and says, you know what, this whole, this whole repentance of Nineveh thing, this is like what I was trying to avoid when I tried to sail across the Mediterranean Sea because I knew that you were exactly compassionate, kind, and relenting from sin and calamity. I can see all the confusion on your faces. So what we need to know, before we just think that, that Jonah has just completely uh, lost his mind. We need to know a little bit about Nineveh. See, Jonah ran away from Nineveh because he can't comprehend a God who would want evil people to experience grace. And so he runs. And before you start thinking that Jonah was overreacting, and before you thinking, start thinking anything ill about Jonah, we need to know a little bit about Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. 
And Assyria at this time was the largest and most violent empire that the world had ever known up to this point. They were bitter enemies of the nation of Israel. And by the time of Jonah, they had invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. And after Jonah, they would do it again. And so Assyria was, was this group of people that were making all sorts of progress in the, in the most efficient ways to overcome and completely plunder a city. They began making new kinds of, of, of weapons, new kinds of shields. They began employing new taxic, tactics and so, and so that they could bring the greatest level of violence against whatever city that they set their sights on. And sure enough, the Assyrian Empire, little by little, city by city, conquer by conquer, city raised by city raised, was, was building up its empire. And what, ha- what a lot of empires would do is they would go in and they would slaughter everybody. And certainly Assyria did their fair share of killing, but Assyria also would come in and, and, and they would begin to say, no, you are a resource to be used for the Assyrian army. And so they would force people into fighting for the empire. It was absolutely the most violent murderous, cruel, overcoming empire the world had ever known up to that point. They were mean and they were hated by the rest of the world. And not just by the rest of the world, but by Israel because they had invaded Israel and their own brothers and sisters had been killed and hung on and like put on a stake for display. I mean, just the most violent, grotesque things that you could ever imagine is what Assyria was doing. And here is Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And God tells his prophet Jonah, go and preach to those people. And Jonah's like, "Uh uh-uh. No, I am not. The best comparison I can come up with, and this doesn't even do justice, but... A good comparison might be is about how the U.S. felt about the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I mean, it was just bitter, bitter enemies. In fact, Jonah and other, other Israelites would certainly have the attitude that as soon as Israel's, uh, Assyria's day is coming, I mean, there's some day that's coming where they're going to be overthrown. Some other greater enemy is going to be able to make them pay for what they've done. And so certainly Jonah and any other Israelites would think they need to get what's coming to them. They can't treat other nations like that and get away with it. Someone is going to come in and start kicking some Assyrian butt, if you know what I mean, Right? And so kindness, love, mercy, and grace were not options to show these people. And here God is trying to convince Jonah to go there and preach. And Jonah's thinking, God should know better. God should know better. Listen, I came across this book of poems. It's called You, Jonah. And it's a book of poems inspired by the the Jonah story. And uh, I've included both of the poems I'm gonna reference today in your notes. And the first one is, the first one is let's play it cool. Let's play it cool, right? So here's, here's the poem to try to explain this. I know a better way to circumvent your silly streaking of mixing love and righteous judgment. All I need to do is take the next flight west out of your jurisdiction. This will give you time for sober second thoughts and swear off this kick of simple-minded kindness. (laughs) It's pretty good. 
And so now we know all about Nineveh and all about these things, and you're thinking, wow, this is a very interesting history lesson, but it is Sunday morning, and I need a little something better than that, right? So what does all of this have to do with us? Well, the author of Jonah is inviting the reader into the story. Uh, in, in fact, using, he's using Jonah to critique and call out the worst parts of ourselves, which is why we're doing this series during Lent and not right after Easter. <laughs> you see, we are invited to do this. We're invited to recognize that sometimes we are just like Jonah. We can't stand the thought of God being compassionate toward or wishing grace for people or groups of people that we consider our enemies. I want to say that again. We are invited to recognize that sometimes we are just like Jonah, where we can't stand the thought of, being, of God being compassionate toward a people or a group of people that we consider our enemies. In fact, I would encourage you to just take a moment to think about this. What people or groups of people have you always assumed are fundamentally opposed to you or to your faith or to your lifestyle? Or what is it, where, what is there, uh, where is there, or what is a group of people that you would consider to be utterly evil and beyond saving? And then imagine how it might feel if God said to you, I want you to go to that group of people. I want you to share the good news of my love, my grace, and my compassion. It'd be a hard pill to swallow, wouldn't it? No, 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 no. You must have something mixed up. You got me mixed up with someone else. Your wires are crossed. Surely this can't be the case. It's a really difficult thing to accept that, that God often has in mind the same kind of grace and mercy and love and compassion for the people that we consider enemies as he has for us. You see, so often what, we're, what we want to do is we're very easily accept God's love and grace and compassion toward me. Oh, thank you, Jesus. But then when, when God says, oh yes, but that's the same way that I feel about them, whoever them is, then how quick we are to say, but God, I thought you were on my side. Right, and in fact, this becomes, even eleva this becomes elevated even more because here's Israel, the people of God. God says, you, I am your God and you are my people. But I want you to go to that foreign place and I want you to proclaim my goodness. You can see this difficulty played out in, in our world when different groups, Christian groups, scapegoat other people, whether they be from a particular country or countries or religion or race. And in scapegoating that group, they, they, they deem everyone in that group as not eligible for God's love and mercy. In fact, just to give you a sense of how deeply Jonah feels about this, look at the lengths that he is willing to go to in order to avoid Nineveh. In chapter one, verses seven through 12, 
In verses seven through 12, it says, then the sailors said to one another, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, it fell on Jonah. And so they asked him all these series of questions and he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And this terrified them. And they asked, what have, uh, what have you done? And they knew that he was running away from the Lord, but then the sea got rougher and rougher. And so what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? And here's the line. Jonah says, pick me up and throw me into the sea. In other words, Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh and preach. Jonah would rather sacrifice his life than go and be obedient to God in order to share the good news with this group of people. I mean, these are the links that Jonah is willing to go to. And if we're not reading the text carefully, we might... uh, we might be tempted to think this is really selfless of him. What a selfless, compassionate move on the part of Jonah, willing to give his own life in order to save the life of the others. But actually when we read Jonah and we begin to sense kind of where Jonah is at and we enter into the story, we recognize that maybe this was his most selfish move yet because he is willing to die and put his blood on the sailor's hands in order to avoid Nineveh. It's crazy. Now, you should know that uh, in Jonah, everything is exaggerated in order to make a point, right? So in the Jewish mindset, you find this a lot in Jewish writings, particularly uh, apocalyptic writings. Uh, In Jewish apocalyptic mindset, uh, the sea was a place of chaos and the origin of where evil comes out of. And so for Jonah to say, throw me into the sea, is literally saying, I am not, I'm not willing to live anymore. Like I, I expect to die when you throw me here. And he's willing to put his blood on the sailor's hands in order to avoid it. And before we all get too sad, I, I would just submit to you that the part, of, the part of the goal of Jonah is to shake us out of this mindset and say, is there any part of you that, that, that says that same thing or has that same attitude? And shake us out of it and help us to see God for who he truly is, a gracious and compassionate God. In fact, another poem might be appropriate. It's a poem called Question. It goes like this. I hate God's enemies with perfect hatred. Why can't God do as much? (laughs) You see the irony in the question, right? The only enemy of God is sin and death, which he has overcome through the resurrection. And like, we're not that part of the story yet, but we're getting there, right? And so the idea is God is for humanity. Paul put it this way, our battle and our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So as soon as you think that your beef is with a brother or sister, you've got it all wrong. It's not about about having a beef with brothers and sisters or flesh and blood. It's about recognizing principalities and powers. And so, so already we're getting to this ironic question, I hate God's enemies with a perfect hatred. I'm innocent. Why can't God do as much? And the idea is, oh man, that God has no enemy except for sin and death, which he has overcome in Christ and the resurrection. You with me? I told you this story was true. <laughs> and I told you it had a lot more to offer us than a moralistic lesson about obeying, Christ, about obeying God. And so what we're invited to do is to live into this story 
and to see as God sees and to have compassion on the most unlikely of people. And Jesus, of course, talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Paul talks about this. Uh, When the church in Corinth was churning their dinner table, the Lord's table, into a mirror of social hierarchy. He says to the church, when you gather around the table in God's name, make sure that everyone is welcome and everyone has enough to eat. What was happening in Corinth is that as they gather around the Lord's table and and they're remembering Christ, the poor were left out and left with only crumbs. And Paul says, this cannot be. It's the Lord's table, it's not your table. Make sure there's enough for everyone. And so here's a story about one of God's prophets. If Jonah were living today, we would call him a Christian. Here's a story about one of God's prophets who was unwilling to to accept God's compassionate love for the violent city of Nineveh. And the story is told not to inform us but to implicate us. The story is told not to inform us, but to implicate us. Do we see ourselves in Jonah? Are we willing to see ourselves in Jonah? And if so, is there work? Is there room for the Spirit to work and do work in our lives that will bring about change? Every now and then I get to a point in a sermon and I always think to myself, should I, should I be so bold as to say what I'm about to say? <laughs> and throughout my long tenure here, I've always answered yes. <laughs> so I don't, think tomorrow, I don't think this morning will be any different. The question that Jonah invites us to ask is, is there room for the Holy Spirit to work to bring us to a place where we didn't used to be, to bring us to a different conclusion, to bring us to a new perspective, to to challenge what we consider always to be the status quo? I don't know that I'll ever forget a few years back when listening to news cycles and all that was going on in the world at the time. and I remember realizing or, or, or coming to the conclusion or a new insight that there, there's a real discrepancy between being anti-abortion and then celebrating victory in war that took innocent lives. It was, it was right after our country had, had won a war and it was right when the war on abortion was in the forefront and and I remember thinking like my brothers and sisters in Christ are on one hand proclaiming the value of life of children in the womb to which that I to which I agree but on the other hand are are celebrating this this wartime victory that has killed many innocent lives and I know this is a complicated issue and, and, and there's all kinds of nuance that, that maybe we don't have time to get into. But, but I remember just thinking and, and began to say, 
and ask myself questions like this. Is the life of an unborn American baby more valuable than the life of a born Iraqi child? And with the Spirit's help, I came to realize that from God's perspective, there's no difference in the value of one life over the other. That both are equally valuable. And that to be pro-life means to have a consistent ethic of being pro-life. Now, can I be honest with you right now? Like, if you're squirming in your seat, <laughs> then I'm right there with you because this message of Jonah is for all of us, right? Like, like, like we don't ascribe to a faith that just sort of like is easy and like the world just works itself out and praise Jesus, my life is easy and I don't need to think about anything. But rather through the Spirit's help, he just kind of helps bring us and shape us and move us and say, Listen, if we're, gonna, if we're gonna be in favor of life, let's be in favor of life. And then when you, what was just an easy, really easy answer, and you come to a new conclusion, guess what? An army of new questions comes up, right? Like, I don't want you to leave today and say, that Pastor Andy is so simple-minded. Listen, I get it. It is hard, and it is difficult, and it is nuanced, and it is complicated, and that just sounds a lot like the world which is complicated and nuanced and just has all kinds of shades of gray and this and that and all of that. But here's, here's what I want to, here's what the Jonah story invites us into. Can we come to a place where we can say, oh, Holy Spirit, where I once was completely closed off, would you begin to crack a little bit of openness in me? Where I once wrote an entire people off as too evil for your love and compassion, even though I am a beneficiary of your love and compassion, will you begin to just crack that a little bit? Is there room in our life, in our heart, for the Holy Spirit to work on us? Let's not run from the possibility of God extending grace to our enemies, but rather let's embrace the reality that God loves humanity. And so my encouragement to you today is to be open to an ever-expanding view of God who isn't just on my side, but is on humanity's side. Be open to an ever-expanding view of God that isn't just on my side, but is on humanity's side. And invite you into that, not based on my own viewpoints or based on my own best ideas, but I invite you into that based on the... Re- on the evidence of Jesus Christ on the cross because this very thing was perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ who took on the sin of all humanity so that anyone who calls on him in faith can have life. You are not exempted from the cross because of where you live in the world or what your past is or your level of income, but rather the salvation won on the cross is available to all people. And so may we as a community walk in the way of God's love today, even for those people that we consider to be the most evil. Amen? This is a challenging word today, and I I recognize that sometimes my boldness comes across as harshness. I don't want you to hear that today. What I want you to hear is that God is stirring something in me. And I hope that he will stir it in you. That's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear that I don't have all the answers. I got a whole bunch of questions. 
but what I can say on the authority of God's word and the evidence of Jesus Christ, that God loves humanity. And salvation is available for all who will call on his name. Even the Ninevites, right? So whoever the Ninevites are, may we come to see God's love and compassion. And may we walk in the ways of love.